1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bain Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Ellen Chester, and I'm currently a senior fellow at RBI. Uh, this past September, Massa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian, died in police custody, having been detained for the alleged crime of wearing her hijab improperly. Arrests and killings are nothing new in Iran, but the death of this beautiful and promising young woman ignited a protest movement that shows no sign of abating. Despite numerous public executions, think there's been 30 deaths and other crackdowns since, all intended to inspire fear and stifle dissent. Western sanctions have slowed Iran's economy, uh, causing protests. Students are protesting their absence of freedom and opportunities, teachers, their lack of pay, farmers, their lack of water, retirees, their fear of economic insecurity. But at the heart of this new powerful movement has been uh, Iran's women whose frustrations with what uh, many would argue is a misogynist theocracy have been mounting for four decades. We are fortunate to have uh, with us today two experts on Iran and the situation of women within it. First is the distinguished Manaz Afkami, former Minister of Women's Affairs in Iran under the regime of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Uh, Manaz found refuge in the United States during the Iranian Revolution when she was declared an apostate and enemy of the Khomeini regime and placed on a death list. She has since been a prominent voice in the global women's movement. She is founder and president of Women's Learning Partnership and Alliance of Advocacy and Training Organizations in 20 countries of the global south that promotes women's leadership and human rights in 28 languages across 60 countries. She is author or editor of six books, most recently, The Other Side of Silence, Uh, An elegiac, I would say, memoir of exile Iran and the global women's movement, uh, published recently by the University of North Carolina Press. Second uh, is a young and rising scholar of Iran, Kelly Shannon, associate professor of history at Florida Atlantic University, executive director of the Center for Peace, Justice and Human Rights there, and author of U.S. foreign policy and Muslim women's human rights. Kelly is currently working on a new book about US-Iran relations in the first half of the 20th century. Welcome to you both. My first question to Manaz. As you know, um, I was trained as an historian at Columbia University in the 1970s. I've since spent most of my own 40-plus year career in government and philanthropy, philanthropy, but always with the view that politics and public policy are invariably path-dependent, that we need to understand our history, to move forward in in the future and to understand our present and move forward in the future. So can you begin today by outlining the highlights of your own poignant and powerful story as you've just told it in a memoir and its relevance to Iran today as po- protesters chant women, life, freedom.
1: Thank you, Ellen. And
0: uh, thank
1: you for including me on this uh, conversation. Um, uh, at the moment that uh, Uh, the revolution happened is a good place to uh, sort of um, uh, outline uh, the place where women were uh, at the beginning of the revolution. For one thing, I was at the time in the United States negotiating with uh, the UN the creation of INSTRA, uh, the Institute for Global uh, Training and uh, Research on Women and uh, which was supposed to take place in Tehran. Already we had Asia Pacific Center in Tehran, headed by Elizabeth Reed, who was an exceptional feminist. And the 1980 conference was supposed to take place in Iran. These three were the international, sort of a sign sign of the international uh, progress of Iranian women and the uh, internal uh, situation was that um, we had uh, the most uh, successful, I would say, a support system for leadership of women in both politics, economics, etc., and uh, including childcare on the premises, halftime work for, uh, uh, for uh, mothers up to the age of three, uh, seven months pregnancy uh, leave and uh, uh, all of the uh, part, the progressive uh, parts of the family protection law, and all of this had happened in in a sort of a thoughtful uh, process that included uh, a generation of women before us, and uh, had been uh, obviously amazingly successful. So uh, the reason I'm reviewing that is to say that Iranian women uh, were exceptional even then, you know. But after the revolution, which they participated in at first, like many others, thinking that things were gonna be better, uh, the immediate uh, uh, reaction of Khomeini uh, was uh, to nullify Uh, all that women had gained and include also limitations, such as their movements, uh, where they can go and where they couldn't go, and of course, the hijab, which is really a symbolic thing. It's not really the cause of either the revolution or lack of the the revolution. So after the revolution, the first, um, just uh, in February, we had the revolution, the uh, arrival of uh, Khomeini, and then in March, we had the first outburst of women, which was cruelly uh, harassed and uh, violently stopped. After that, there, the thing has continued. Uh, the the um, uh, progressive and uh, thoughtful uh, work of the women uh, has, has continued. And especially in the last um, two decades, uh, the the thing that started the whole uh, uh, movement uh, and made it more um, uh, carefully organized was the One Million Signatures. And we worked with women leaders to bring them outside of the country so that the training and the learning and the sharing of ideas could take place for them, and also they could get to know other people, other leaders in other parts of the world and uh, so the one million signatures was uh, you know had some of the characteristics which were very nicely followed later and expanded Uh, it was based on door-to-door campaigns Uh, It was based on bringing in the men, which is, I think, a very vital part of the women's movement in Iran. Uh, And it also had the use of uh, technology, which which, uh, originally was weaker and it became, became stronger and stronger. After the uh, one million signatures, which was uh, altogether a very successful learning experience and political experience for women in Iran, the Green Movement came, which was against the political system and the uh, the, the false and the, Faulty uh, election of uh, uh, the uh, president, and uh, uh, so what happened there uh, was that, uh, of course, it didn't, uh, it it didn't, it couldn't succeed with the cruelty and 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 uh, uh, violence that was uh, imposed on women, but it did spread to to the Arab Spring, and it also laid the uh, possibilities for the present movement. And the present movement has some uh, ideas, which I think are important for us to think about. One is the global nature of the reception that it has had. It is the first uh, revolution by women in the world, and the first that has been supported from grassroots people around the world to the highest levels of government. And I think that the reason that it's so important is because that what we learned in Iran prior to the revolution and implemented, one of them being that the structure of the leadership has to change so that we can have the kind of democratic and collaborative leadership that we need. And we as women have to include men in this process. And the very um, slogan Uh, uh, women life, liberty shows uh, what they're talking about. This is a kind of thing that applies to everybody and appeals to everybody. So to my thinking that uh, uh, this is an exceptional opportunity at at an exceptional time to be able to help Iranians so that we can have the global movement of women that we really desperately need.
0: But I I just for our audience to understand what you're saying, a couple of top lines to take from what you're saying is that while there was political repression and civil repression under the Shah, there was actually quite substantial progress with respect to uh, the social and economic status and educational status of women. Women were well educated in in, uh, Iran They had high rates of labor force participation. Um, They had good health care, the beginnings of changes in uh, family law and other laws that uh, were changing all over the world. But actually, Iran was part of a global movement in the 1970s that began uh, legal reforms and uh, opening up of doors for women. Uh, women thought they would be even better off under uh, the Islamic Republic. Quite the opposite happened in terms of the government's policies, the repression. But um, is this fair? I'll ask Kelly to comment on all of this um, as a historian. Is this a fair analysis? But the, the, the government cracked down. Uh, in terms of allowing any kind of political representation or uh, social equality for women. Uh, And certainly, that caused a a disjuncture between their actual status in the society. They were in school and in college and in universities. They were in the workforce, but they had no rights and they were made to uh, bail. Kelly, is that a fair summary?
2: Uh, yes, I, th- I think in general. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's been a long history of women's rights activism in Iran. Uh, there's early feminists dating back to the middle of the 19th century, and the the movement and where women started to organize on behalf of their own rights actually dates back to Iran's first revolution, the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 to 1911. Um, and eventually, women's rights became central to the modernization program of the Pahlavi government um, across, you know, from the 1920s forward. Uh, So as as you both pointed out, women by the 70s in Iran had made significant progress in a lot of areas. Um, So as as you mentioned, Ellen, they had access to higher education, to careers in various fields. Uh, There were equal pay laws. There was healthcare, and Iran had some fairly liberal reproductive rights laws by the 1970s for the time, uh, freedom of dress and movement, the right to vote and hold office. Uh, and of course, the Pahlavi government wasn't completely democratic, but women did have political participation within that system. Um, as women you mentioned- the-
0: being Right. Example, Minister of Women's Affairs.
2: Yes. Uh, so the second. Before minister... we had any kind of
0: women's representation of that nature, even here in the United States. Right.
2: Yes. Yes. So two cabinet level ministers who were women. The first was Frukhru Parsa, the Minister of Education, and the second was Manaz. And the, you know, her position was only the second ever cabinet level position in the world dedicated to women's rights. Um, as you mentioned, the family law was the most progressive in the Islamic world, and and that covered inheritance, marriage, divorce, and child custody. Uh, It involved the government trying to eliminate polygamy and child marriage. Uh, and so women, you know, of course, did not all benefit equally from these, these policies. Obviously, poor and rural women had less access to some of these things than than women who were wealthier and in urban areas. But women were, I, I would say, Iranian women were on the forefront of women's equality in the 70s. Um, and as Manaz mentioned, you know, the, the international community was looking to Iran and Iran was the center of, of a lot of this activity, including it was supposed to host the Second World Conference on Human Rights uh, held by the United Nations. And of course, that had to get moved to Copenhagen at the last minute because of the Iranian revolution. Uh, so, I mean, when, when Iranian people rose up against the Shah's regime... There were a lot of different groups with a lot of different ideologies and political agendas. Uh, Khomeini became this symbolic figurehead of the revolution. And what he said before he came back to Iran was very different from what he did when he got there. Uh, So he made nods towards women's rights before he came back. Once he returned to the country in February of 1979, rolling back women's progress and eliminating the rights they had won was at the top of his agenda. Uh, And this is the same as it is for any radical, conservative, or fundamentalist in any of the world's religion. Um, Controlling women is central to their agenda for controlling society. Uh, So as you mentioned, I mean, women were forced to wear the the veil. Um, So compulsory veiling, uh, this was one of the first things that Khomeini tried to do. As Manas mentioned, tens of thousands of Iranian women took to the streets to protest that in March of 1979, but the men were not with them. Uh, it was mostly women in the streets. Uh, women's protests failed. And so since the 80s, women have dealt with, um, you know, being banned from certain jobs, like being judges. Universities have been segregated by sex and women have not been allowed to start study certain fields, uh, especially in science and technology at various points. But Um, they
0: are 60% of the university students, like in the United States, for example.
2: Yes, yes. I was going to get to that. Um, So they they haven't been allowed to major in certain subjects. Um, Women are not allowed to sing in public. Um, Women cannot attend sporting events and are segregated in other areas of public life. Uh, The government almost immediately repealed the Shah's family law. So it granted most of the the rights in marriage, divorce, and child custody to, to men once again lowered the age of marriage um, first to 13 and then to nine for girls, and then eventually raised it to 13 again for girls in 2002, but um, has, has reinstituted child marriage. Women do not have freedom of movement, so they need their husband or their father's permission to leave the country. They need their father's permission to marry. So they're legally second-class citizens within their own country. And of course, we know from the Masa Amini case that they've also been harassed by the morality police on a regular basis for what they're wearing. Uh, they have faced violence uh, that's been state, state sanctioned, imprisonment for being activists or speaking out while imprisoned. They've faced torture and execution. And um, perhaps in one of the more horrific state policies, before a woman is executed, if she is a virgin, she is sexually assaulted before she is put to death, yes. um, because the belief is that a virgin shouldn't be executed. Uh, and this this dates back to the 1980s. And Iran is one of the leading countries in executing its own citizens, but especially in executing women in the world. Um, but as Manas mentioned, women have been fighting back. Um, collectively, they started to resist the, the hijab r- restrictions starting in the 1990s. They started showing hair in the front of their veils, wearing makeup. I mean, the idea was that the government couldn't arrest all of them. Um, Then they started to push for greater rights and divorce. Um, There was the 2006 peaceful protests for women's rights that led to the One Million Signatures campaign that uh, Manaz mentioned, which then helped to inform the 2009 Green Movement that arose in protest to the very shady re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as president. Um, And since then, there's been a really concerted feminist effort to protest the hijab laws in particular. Um, They are a problem because they take away women's freedom of choice. But they also symbolize that broader system where women are oppressed and targeted by the state. Uh, but as you mentioned, Ellen, I mean, women in Iran, you know, they could drive, they can go to college, they're the majority of college students, they're the majority of, of people earning degrees in even the science fields at this point, which the government has been making noise about trying to change that. They're um, an important
0: part of the labor force and therefore of yes. the economy. Right? Yeah.
2: They work, they're educated, they're articulate, they know what they want. And what they want is the end of this government and the end of. The, the restriction of their human rights.
0: So the government ostensibly uh, enforces these laws on religious grounds, saying that they are part of Sharia law. But I'm reminded, um, I'm old enough to remember Beijing in 1995, where Manaz also was a, a, an a important actor. I remember that uh, you know Hillary Clinton's speech gets the most attention, but Benazar Bhutto, then serving as prime minister of Pakistan, spoke after Hillary uh, and quoting from the Quran, characterized respect for women's rights as principles inherent to Islamic scripture and lived experience. She dismissed contrary interpretations from fundamentalists as, quote, social taboos spun by the traditions of a patriarchal society. Uh, later, the victim of an assassination, um, she may well have sacrificed her life for these views. A few days ago, I heard the current foreign minister of Pakistan, a woman make exactly this point, calling on Muslim countries to speak up and condemn uh, the Islamic Republic and the Revolutionary Guard. Um, Manaz, can you speak a little bit about the degree to which you have worked not only to bring along secular women, but also religious women? Um, Part of your book that is most interesting um, is that aspect of it, uh, how you've worked with women's groups in Iran, but many of them religious women who have uh, been open to the idea that within their own scripture, they can find sources for women's rights, not only within international law, which they should also look to. I'm not putting that the idea of universal laws down, but but I think it is important, as you've stressed more, to bring people along from where they are. Uh, yes,
1: I think that um, uh, you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Ellen, uh, and uh, I, I love the uh, historical review that um, Kelly gave us. much more precisely than I did. And um, this actually, one thing we have to think about is that the uh, Khomeini government or the Islamic Republic is probably and kelly may help um uh, will have me with this it's the only theocracy of its kind in the world ever you know you have religious uh, heads of state who are also heads of churches or mosques or whatever we still have those uh, today but we never have a bunch of uh, religious actors who are running things like agriculture, like budgeting, like uh, the ordinary matters of uh, life. And I always go back to Jesus Christ, uh, who said, leave uh, Caesar's uh, business to Caesar and God's business to God. And uh, and this is secularism in its most uh, enlightened form. Uh, And uh, to, to actually... Uh, one of the bad things that has happened after the revolution, oh, there's so many horrible things, but uh, but one of the ones that has been uh, really very bad is that it has made Islam identified as either the Taliban or the Khomeini government or one of these radical entities that have nothing to do with religion. Uh, Actually, all of the three monotheistic uh, religions come from the same place in in the Middle East, and they are so similar. Uh, I've made it my business to read all of them carefully, and some of it is repeating exactly the same names, the same stories, and so forth. But then about all of them, we have to decide that even though we live at the same time, we are not contemporaries so we are living at a time that that uh, uh, things have changed a lot in the world especially recently but but our lifestyles uh, have a pattern of developing that is not simultaneous so people uh, are, are right now for instance blaming people who were the founders of the uh, the uh, United States and, and expect of them the kind of thinking that comes in the 21st uh, century. Uh, things have to adjust to the times and evolve
0: with the times.
1: But and
0: so, it is, isn't it true, though, that within the text of the Quran, one can find references to equal rights for women. I mean, the discourse in the the Old Testament as in the New Testament, there's competing discourses, but there is an element that doesn't in any way support fundamentalist interpretations of these texts.
1: Absolutely. In all the three religions, they're the same. They're they're wonderful ideas of equality, of of, of, uh, love thy neighbor, of working together. And then there are some stuff that are not exactly... Uh, either uh, doable or or, or uh, even possible at this time. So that's why religion should be, and and I think the demonization of Islam was one of the outcomes of this particular uh, government, and also making these radical Islamists, you know, who have destroyed basically with the help of some. Western countries, one can say, the entire Middle East, actually. If you look back the time that, for instance, I worked in Iran, uh, Mohammed Zahir Shah was the, uh, the head of Afghanistan. Bhutto was in Pakistan. They were Even Saddam Hussein is not even comparable to what we have had in, in uh, these countries since. So it's, it's, it's been a very devastating thing. And then one thing I want to really emphasize is What women in Iran have become and are actually asserting now is not a product of living under a monstrous government. If they're educated, it's because people worked, as Ellen mentioned, since the Constitutional Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. They wanted education. They wanted jobs. They wanted decision-making, and they learned how to do it. And I have to take um, uh, uh, some... Uh, you know, uh, uh, some differences uh, with the thinking about the government of Iran during my own time to be there. I was in a cabinet of 20 men. Almost all of them had been educated through the help of the government outside the country and gotten PhDs, one in nuclear physics, one in transportation, one in economics. They were well-educated, people with a lot of commitment and energy and real, uh, real um, love for their country and its progress. And they did amazing stuff. And the Shah was not what they are saying he was. He had his faults, but he certainly was not uh, uh, autocratic this or that. Um, uh, When I worked there for 10 years, uh, whether as, as a civil servant or in the government, I never had any conversation with the Shah or any message from the Shah or any order from the Shah. He had other uh, interests, you know, mostly in foreign affairs. And people did what they thought was right for their own uh, line of work. And the women who are doing what they're doing were a product of the time when we all worked together. We had Mm -hmm. one million People coming to the 400 branches of the women's organization to learn from literacy all the way to the different skills so, that would give them a job.
0: Right, yeah. you're, you're you're pointing out just for our audience that uh, under before you became women's ministry, you ran something called the Women's Organization of Iran (W.O.I.), which essentially created local engagement um, with women in Ch- Education, healthcare, uh, teaching rights—something um, very advanced, you know, for its day in the world. Uh, since this was the 1970s, uh, a time when, as I pointed out earlier, we didn't have any women in the United States Senate. We had a handful of women in government here. It was the beginning of what has been a 50-year revolution in women's rights in the West, um, but just the beginning. Let me let me just bring Kelly in here. Um, Can you say anything about the different sources of authority for women's rights, universal human rights law codified at the United Nations? With the participation of Iran, Manaz was writing, uh, helping to write CEDAW, the convention to eliminate discrimination against all uh, all forms of discrimination against women um, versus local uh, traditions also actually facilitate women's rights and perhaps cause some of the tension that is now bursting out in the protests today?
2: Certainly. I mean, I think what the Islamic regime has done in the last 40 years has brought Something historically new to the country in the version of Islam that it's tried to impose on everyone else. And so in that way, it's 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 very modern. It's you know, fundamentalism in, in religions is a very modern phenomenon. Uh I, I mean, various different schools of Islamic thought interpret the Quran differently. Um, the Quran itself is a very poetic piece of writing, it's not straightforward, and so it could be used to justify various types of interpretations on women's rights. But if you actually read it, it doesn't. Say that that women should be treated the way that the Islamic Republic is treating them, and even if you read the um, the, the passage on on dress. It, it basically says that women and men should dress modestly. It doesn't say they need to cover their face or their hair. or it, So it's interpreted by different Islamic schools of thought in different ways. It's been informed by local cultures where Islam has been adopted. And in Iran, um, it has historically been a majority Muslim country over the last, you know, several hundred years. But it also was a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-linguist linguistic uh, state uh, through the 20th century and the imposition of this um, very radical interpretation of Islam that I I think stems largely from patriarchy and the desire for control over society, uh, alienated and has caused the oppression of multiple ethnic minorities and multiple religious minorities in the country. Uh, the interpretation of Islam to the detriment of women is different from what came before. Um, obviously, women faced restrictions, and they had formed a movement uh, to to push back against that. But different communities in Iran had had different um, treatment and different status for women historically. So this 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 uniform imposition from the top down um, has 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 been the problem. And for women and for what I'm hearing coming from Iranians today from inside of Iran is that um, for the people who've grown up in the 40 years since the revolution, they're, they' they, they don't like religion, period. Um, Islam has been forced down their throat. The version of Islam they think is is not the Islam of their 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 parents and their grandparents. Um, they see religion as oppression, and what they're calling for is a secular democracy. And they're it, calling for human rights that goes back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, of, on which Iran was a signatory back in back then. So, and,
0: and yeah. certainly the argument that. These ideas of women's rights as human rights are a Western import imposed on innocents in their country rings hollow to these women. And we see uh, that for sure in their actions on the street. And then the enormous courage it takes um, to stand up to this very repressive regime, a courage which the men are following them with, mm-hmm. but the men are not leading. This is, as Manaz said earlier, possibly uh, the, it's the first major woman-led revolution, and maybe certainly the first one that's successful. We're we're running out of time, so I want to get to what you think can be done here, or what will happen here. Obviously, uh, you, Kelly, you are a historian. Manaz, you are a women's rights activist. Uh, we can't predict the future, but um, what what should we be doing? Um, The UN member states, I noticed uh, recently, voted to oust Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women, which, ironically, Manaz, uh, working with the regime, the Pahlavi regime, helped to establish, uh, was a a major actor. A a big part of her book, I will suggest to our listeners, well worth reading, um, is that story. Again, um, these were not institutions at the UN set up by Westerners and imposed on innocence elsewhere, um, they had enormous input from women all over the world, um, including Iran at the time, um, but that the UN Commission on the Status of Women is important as I think it is and is fully understood. Um, and. Uh, it it seems like a hollow gesture. What else should we be doing? What should the Iranian diaspora be doing? What should Americans, what could we be doing? I mean, obviously lots happening in the world uh, with Ukraine and Afghanistan, elsewhere. Uh, It's hard to keep attention on Iran, but what should we be doing? Manaz, maybe you want to start. And also, should we be arguing for regime change? Um, I'm a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Ray Takai there recently. Um, said that Europe and the West need to encourage regime change. That's not something our government is doing. Should we be doing that, Mimenaaz?
1: Well, um, I, I would uh, probably be um, even more um, uh, sort of radical uh, than that, uh, because I think that the example of what's happening in Iran, just as the theocratic creation caused so much radicalization of these crazy groups all over, which I don't call Muslims. They're they're just crazies who happen to use Islam. Um, Just as that happened, uh, I think the positive side can also be broader and more important. Look, let's face it, this is a century in which we are facing almost the demise of the human race, from pandemics, to climate, to war, to uh, everything else. Uh, we really are are losing, even in this country, in the United States, you know we, we're losing our democracy. So uh, what uh, and of course the women are losing. they they're, they're not going forward. individually they're going forward, but collectively they have no presence, you know. So uh, what what I'm hoping is that supporting the Iranian women and their broad uh, ask, which is women, uh, life, liberty, be something that we around the world can support, and if we help them change this situation in Iran, and create something decent, and and that would be the the. Uh, the uh, the uh, incentive for creating a global movement, which it already has done. I have never in my life seen this kind of support. So uh, maybe we should see it not as an Iranian thing, saving Iranian women, but as a way of being, bringing men in, working with women to change the systems. So working for democracy and human rights.
0: Well, it, certainly Iran is an example of, uh, the the dictum of the women's human rights movements that you can tell how well a society is doing by how it treats its women. I mean, Iran's economy is tanking. And obviously, Western sanctions aren't helping there, but uh, without according uh, dignified rights to women, uh, you don't have a stable and secure society or democracy. I mean, women, peace and freedom um, is... Uh, a rallying a cry because it it has it. There's some truth to it that countries um, that treat women well tend to be more secure and peaceful countries.
2: Kelly, do you want to add something to this? Yes, uh, I, I I certainly think that um, the entire world should throw its support behind the revolution that's happening in Iran. And I will say at this point, it is a full blown revolutionary movement.
0: There's the no Iranian- possibility of reform from within. Are we agreed no. on that?
2: Yeah, there is not. And the government has completely lost all credibility with its own people. The protesters have made it clear that they are united and determined to see this through to the end, regardless of the violence that they face at the hand of the state. So I think that... from the United States perspective, uh, a lot more could be done. The Biden administration has said that democracy versus autocracy is the great struggle of our time and that the United States wants to support democracy. So I think he should put his money where his mouth is because Iran is the forefront of the fight for democracy right now. And, and um,
0: what are our tools for doing that? Oh, you yes. know, Elon Musk has been saying we should send Starlink to link the okay. protesters. Well,
2: I don't, I I don't want to comment on Elon Musk. I think he's a, a nut, but, um, How about the Voice of America, other radio? Yeah, yeah, so I mean, making sure that Iranians have access to accurate information is certainly important. Um, one of the tools of repression of the Iranian government is to shut down the internet and access to communications apps. Um, so I think that the, the countries surrounding Iran as well as the West and the United States can certainly do more to provide internet access and VPNs to Iranians, which allow them access to the internet and they can mask their online signature. But this needs to be, um, a conversation that all of the governments of the world, including the United States, need to have every day. They need to have it front and center. The Biden administration took too long to come out to in making a statement supporting the, the protesters, and they have been very tepid since then. And I think that- um, Well, they I
0: argued mean, in their defense, they argued that the worst thing they could do for the protesters was have them look like they were you know, puppets of the American government. But- well, I- uh, You know, they were reacting to what had happened in the Obama years. I just feel like I I don't want to defend them.
2: Yeah, but I mean, the Iranian government was going to accuse the protesters of being a foreign plot anyway. Um, And uh, the Iranian protesters have made it very clear that this is a homegrown movement. Um, Any foreign imposed government will not work because that's I mean, in the history of Iran, that's been the problem. But I think um, listening to what the Iranian protesters are saying they need, um, I think they certainly need resources. They need money. They need the ability to develop organizations. Leadership, because most of the the major feminist leaders are in prison right now, and this this needs to be united international pressure. Um, I heard
0: a very interesting argument, though, at the Council on Foreign Relations, which said the following, and I think this is so fascinating that what they don't need is ideology, and what they don't have is a certain ideology. And ideology, in a way, is what uh, ruins the, the the movement. Against the Shah, you know, it's Manaz, another part of her book that is just extraordinary is this story of her own sister, who had been educated at Berkeley in the United States and was a, a, a Marxist, a socialist youth thinker, uh, quite brilliant, and, uh, and went to Iran with the best of ideas, even though her own sister had worked in the Pahlavi regime, felt that there could be more equality, more opportunity, particularly um, for the poor in Iran. Her own husband lost his life in that struggle. Um, today, you don't have ideological divisions like that. There aren't Marxists and Leninists, and uh, yeah, they do, The it's protesters a have an ideology movement, right? Yeah, and it has. Its its ideology is secular you know democracy. Yeah, that, democracy.
2: I mean, there was a a document that was circulated late last year um, that was written by a group of protesters who have claimed that they're their intellectual thought leaders, and obviously, they had to remain anonymous, laying out a plan for what they wanted a post regime government to look like. And it was secular democracy with a respect for human rights. Uh, And so I, I mean, I think they are united in this, as you pointed out, there's not 15 different factions. The problem is they don't have a leader. Um, I don't think you need one leader. I actually think that social movements work better with many leaders, but the capacity for that leadership has been stifled. And I think this is where the diaspora has come in. And they've been very, very active in providing uh, a lot of those ideas that leadership and um, trying to keep this issue in the public eye, having protests around the world. Uh, But I think that the governments of the world need to take this much more seriously. And the United States needs to take this much more seriously and be much more proactive in in supporting the revolutionaries than they have been.
0: I hope we can see more conversation around Iran and women at the Commission on the Status of Women uh, meetings at the United Nations in March. Um, We're running out of time. Any final thoughts from either of you before we have to sign off here? Manaz?
1: Well, I I certainly am very um, positive and optimistic about the movement that we have seen. And uh, I really think that what we as women should do is, is to focus on how to create our own uh, influencing groups of our own civil society groups all over the world around this, maybe this is our excuse. To, and that's what we are, WLP is doing now, connecting to other women's organizations and trying to get them to, to unite in this support and also in influencing their governments and their artists and their other economic leaders and so forth to help this movement. But through that also to, to help shape a global movement that we desperately need and use that uh, p- platform for for doing our own work as well
0: right to to have iran be the focus for the revival exactly. of a global women's rights movement exactly. which has stalled in the face of pandemics and so much conflict regionally um, and so many other unforeseen circumstances when women met together in beijing almost now 30 years ago uh uh we we didn't quite envisioned the world we have now seen. Um Kelly, a final thought.
2: Yes, I too am optimistic for the prospects for success of the Iranian people. Uh they have a history of successful revolutions. And I think that uh if if we want to be on the right side of history, we need to stand with them. So I'll just end by saying Zan Zendigi Al And what is that? That's <laughs> woman life freedom. Women life freedom. Oh wonderful so obviously I'm I'm
0: slow tonight. <laughs> um well, again, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. I wish it could go on and on. Thank you, Minaz Afkami. Um, please, uh, those of you listening in the audience, look at her new beautiful memoir. Uh, thank you, Kelly Shannon. Uh, what an inspiring young scholar you are. Um, we are both fellow sister graduates of Vassar College. I, when it was all women, Kelly, when it was a co-ed institution. And that's how we met. So I'm particularly grateful and I'll shout out to Vassar. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our thanks to Oswaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, to Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons as the theme music for the show. Um, My name is Ellen Chester and I'm thanking all of you and our audience for joining us and look forward to having you for future episodes of International Horizons.